Welcome to the Wandering Bard Podcast. Thanks for joining me this week on the Wandering Bard podcast. I want to start this episode by prefacing that this is kind of a layman's guide to the actual voyage of Lord Franklin. There are novels and tomes and documentaries of all kind written about this subject, and there's actually people who have literally devoted their entire lives to the study and exploration of the topic. So I'm kind of trying to give a brief accounting of the history as it relates to the song, but it was very easy to go down rabbit holes. So I'm going to do my best to try and stay on topic. Spoiler alert. This voyage did not go well. They had what I like to call a really bad time. But as with many things in life, it's not the destination, it's the journey that's important. There's currently a series on AMC called The Tear about this. I'm only into the first episode, but it was really cool. I'm going to actually plug my Patreon and website at the beginning of this episode. It kind of felt cheap doing it at the end. So if you're interested in exclusive content or appreciate what I'm doing, I do have a Patreon page that you can donate to. You can also check out thewanderingbard.co for some of my original music or to look into the local project, which is where I meet with musicians and artists from around the world and we collaborate on projects together. The first one I'll actually be doing in Capon Bridge, West Virginia next month, and I'm doing it with an old-time fiddler whose name is Dakota Carper. So be on the lookout for that. I think it'll be really cool. So who was Lord Franklin? He was born on April 16, 1786 in Spilsby, England. He started his sailing career as a volunteer on a merchant ship and eventually at the age of 14 entered service into the British Royal Navy where his father had secured him an appointment. He worked his way up the ranks and partook in a couple of battles like the Battle of Trafalgar and the Battle of New Orleans and eventually became famous for his Arctic exploration expeditions of which he participated in four. And this one that the song is about actually isn't the only one that ended really badly. He lost 11 of 20 men on a previous one, and he actually became known as the man who ate his boots because they ran out of food and they were in such dire straits that um, that's what he resorted to doing. There's actually accusations of cannibalism on the previous voyage, but it's not well documented that that actually took place. Nonetheless, Lord Franklin was kind of a national hero. He was actually knighted in 1829 and served as governor of Van Diemen's Land, which we now know as Tasmania, from 1836 to 1843. He was 59 when he left for the final expedition, which in terms of Arctic exploration is definitely no spring chicken, but the first pick for the voyage actually declined. There's a number of locations and things around the world that bear his namesake. There's a Con Australian research vessel, an island in Antarctica and Greenland. There's a strait in Arctic Canada, a street in Adelaide, Australia, and a neighborhood in Winnipeg, Manitoba, just to name a few. The Franklin expedition had two ships, the Terror and the Erebus. Terror and the Erebus were actually the first two steam-powered ships in the Royal Navy. They had 25 horsepower and could reach up to four knots. On them, they carried three years of supplies, which included two tons of tobacco, 8,000 tins of preserves, and about 7,500 liters of liquor. They also carried tea and dress uniforms to celebrate their victory at the end of the voyage, and not to Monday morning quarterback it, but in retrospect, that seems like it probably wasn't the greatest decision. It should also be mentioned that they did have a monkey on board whose name was Neptune, which was given to the crew by Lady Franklin as a gift before they left. The expedition took off in 1845 to 
find the Northwest Passage, which at the time was a hypothetical sea passage that connected the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans and would allow the English to bring riches back from Asia more quickly. Their journey was referred to as the equivalent of what deep space is today, and I read one climate scientist actually said that Franklin probably picked the worst year and the worst decade and the worst millennium in the last 10,000 years to go through the Northwest Passage, but unfortunately he had no way of knowing at the time. The numbers vary how many they took with them. Most reports say 24 officers and 110 men, some say 128, but some of the men got sick and were discharged before the journey really got underway. On the journey, the men would have been inspected every week for signs of scurvy, which is kind of where you get sore gums as an early onset, but it also means that old wounds reopen up, your teeth will loosen, and your skin will bruise really easily. And a lot of times these expeditions, they'd be supplied with lemon juice or lime juice to prevent it, because it was a constant problem, especially on the polar expeditions, because they couldn't get fresh fruit or vegetables along the way. But on the Franklin voyage, some of this lime or lemon juice went bad, so they couldn't use it. Temperatures outside on the voyage could drop as low as negative 48 degrees Celsius overnight and negative 35 degrees by day. And conditions on board the ship were not necessarily much warmer. Uh, there were reports of the officers sitting around in their greatcoats below decks and freezing temperatures. The ships did have some new kind of innovation where there was some pipes connecting the kitchen and the steam would kind of circulate around the ship. So it may not have been bad as some previous voyages, but it was still pretty rough. As they were making their way along the voyage, one of the turns that they were going to take towards the north was completely packed with ice, so they were forced to go south, which was kind of the start of their troubles. Eventually what ended up happening was the ships became trapped in what was called pack ice, which was where the ships cannot sail anymore and they basically are just stuck in the ice and at the mercy of wherever the ice wants to go. The location where the ships became trapped was a place where the locals, the Inuits, rarely visited. They called it Tununik, which meant the back of the beyond. So they couldn't rely on local people for meat or clothing or oil, as some of the previous expeditions had. This happened in September 1846, and it was near the Victoria Strait off King William Island, which is about halfway in between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. By 1848, Franklin and 23 others had actually already died on the ship. And eventually, by April 22nd, 1848, the rest of the survivors, which there were 105 of, they decided to get off the ships and try and head south and make it to Back River. And by this time, many of them had actually, they were already suffering from scurvy or lead poisoning or hypothermia or tuberculosis. And part of the reason for this, it's believed that some of the cans that were stored on board the ship used a new soldering technique which allowed the food to become tainted with botulism or lead poisoning. So basically what the crews did, they took as much as they could carry off the ship and tried to make the 600 mile journey to the southwest. There's actually tales that the Inuits would tell down from generation to generation about this group of people which we now know was the Franklin Expedition just hauling these massive loads across the ice and just kind of falling down from exhaustion or any of the other things they were suffering from and just getting left behind. You can actually find maps of where they have found bodies of these guys and it's really crazy. There's just little dots all over the outskirts of the map that shows where they had fallen. Inuits did have reports of these individuals resorting to cannibalism, which was initially refuted by England. And during this time, the Victorian era, this would have been 
a huge scar, a tarnishing mark on the legacy of these people and something that was just would have been unheard of in England at the time. But it was eventually substantiated that they did in fact do this. They found some of the bodies and examined the bones and there were basically tool marks on the bones that showed that they had done this. I don't want the cannibalism aspect of this voyage to be overemphasized. I mainly discuss it just to show how difficult and desperate these men were. Eventually, it is believed that some of Franklin's men that had left the ship found their way down to the Simpson Strait, which connected the western coastal waters previously visited by Franklin to where they had originated from. So some people actually do give them credit for finding the Northwest Passage, even though they may not have known it at the time. Only one letter was ever found on the ship. It said, all well, party consisting of two officers and six men left the ships on Monday, 24 May, 1847. A second entry was added almost a year later, kind of written around the margins of the paper, that says the ships were abandoned on April 22, 1848, once they'd gotten stuck in the ice. A final postscript on the letter says, and start tomorrow, 26th, for Baxfish River. For years after the loss of the Franklin party, the Victorian media betrayed Franklin as a hero who had led his men in the quest for the Northwest Passage. There was a man named John Ray who had some success in piecing together what happened with the Franklin expedition after talking to some of the Inuits. There's a line in the song, Only the Eskimo in His Skin Canoe, which refers to these people. The Inuits, as I said, passed down their stories orally, and there was, some, there was a couple in particular who helped corroborate the archaeological studies that were going on at the time that everyone was trying to piece together what had happened with Franklin's voyage. So the Inuit people were actually very critical in finding out whatever happened to these guys. Some notable renditions of the song were covered by Pentangle, Sinead O'Connor, Michael O'Donnell, Martin Carthy, and even Bob Dylan has a rendition titled Bob Dylan's Dream. The song may have been inspired by a traditional Irish ballad titled The Crappie Boy, which is set during the 1798 uprising. Versions of that ballad first appeared shortly after the rising, sung by street peddlers. There's several broadside versions of the ballad that were printed, and these typically include the phrase 500 guineas or 1,000 pounds, and the contemporary version actually has a lyric that says, 10,000 pounds I would freely give, that I believe is a legacy from these original versions. A broadside ballad is basically a little cartoon or rhyme or song that is printed on inexpensive paper and distributed. It's kind of amazing to think that something that was kind of written so nonchalantly has survived for so long. The Crappie Boy is actually based on a song called Colin O. Custer May. Pardon my Gaelic, it's not up to snuff. But this has been referenced as possibly the oldest datable Irish melody. It may also be known as Lady Franklin's Lament for Her Husband. It was first collected in a work titled Roud 487 from the Roud Folk Song Index. It was published again in 1878 in a work titled 18 Months on a Greenland Whaler by Joseph P. Faulkner. JustAnotherTune.com goes into specifics of a lot of artists who recorded this. There's so many versions and artists and varying verses, I don't think going through them all would make very compelling podcasting. But if you're interested, check out the site, as it also has pictures of the old publications, which I think are kind of cool to go through. The first literary treatment of this topic was titled Ballad of Sir John Franklin by George H. Booker, and it was published in Sartain's Magazine in May 1850. Interestingly enough, there were two other broadsides that covered this topic as well. One was called Lady Franklin's Lament, and the other was titled Lament on the Fate of Sir Franklin and His Cruise. I'm not sure what happened to the first one, but I think the second one may have been deliberately forgotten. It had a really tasteless line that would have been looked down upon in Victorian England that went, At length though horrid for want of meat, 
their dying comrades they had to eat. Of all the lyrical differences that I could find, my favorite is the line that says, through cruel hardships they vainly strove, versus through cruel hardships they mainly strove. It really changes the context of the song for me, and I have to believe that the vainly line came afterwards, because I doubt that Victorian England would have acknowledged their own vanity during this time period. I've yet to talk about Lady Franklin, and she plays a pretty important part in this song. The descriptions of her as a girl is that she was extremely shy, but when she has to deal with Sir John's disappearance, she's far from that. She goes head-on with the admiralty and the aristocracy of the day and pleads them to send out rescue expeditions to find her husband. Because the ships had taken three years of supplies with them, no one was really worried when they'd only been gone for two years, but she'd known because of conversations she'd had with her husband that something was probably amiss. She ended up taking an apartment near the Admiralty building in London so she could watch the ships coming and going. This apartment came to be known as the Fortress, and she'd actually have previous Arctic explorers there, and they'd roll out maps and try and figure out where Lord Franklin might be. At one point, she actually wrote the United States president at the time, who was Zachary Taylor. It was kind of a breach of protocol, as she wrote as a private citizen instead of sending it through official channels from London. Eventually, she was able to organize several search parties, and even Charles Dickens helped contribute to them. At one point, she was so desperate, if you go back through her journals, it mentions her going to see paranormals like Sears and Clairvoyants in her desperation to bring her husband home. Eventually, these ships were discovered, but it was pretty recently. The Erebus was discovered in relatively shallow water and almost perfectly preserved, except for the stern, which had probably been bitten away by the ice. The reason that this is important is because that's where Franklin's cabin was. Inuit stories dating back to the period shortly after the ships were abandoned speak of Inuits boarding one of the vessels and finding a large man seated in a dark room, obviously dead, with a huge grin on his face. Experts suspect that this was probably the rictus grin that you see on a corpse as the lips and gums recede. Because the Inuits had been so accurate up to this point, there's really no reason to disbelieve them, so a lot of people accept this as true. We also know that Franklin did die on board the ship because a note was found saying that. Whether it was Franklin that they described as the dead man sitting in the room, we can't be certain. There's also rumors that there was a 21-gun salute at some point, and there's a cairn-like structure where they may have buried Franklin. There's also a spiritual dimension to this. Some of the local Inuits believe that King William Island has been cursed ever since this expedition ran into trouble and everyone aboard died. Many of them believe that the island will continue to be cursed until Franklin and his men are found and their spirits can return home. The Franklin expedition still remains at the forefront of public interest in many circles today. Hopefully, he and his brave comrades can be recovered and returned home so they and the Inuits of King William Island can rest in peace. Now, as I'm sure you've been waiting anxiously for, here's my rendition of Lord Franklin. Ship on mountains of ice was cool. Only 
story of Franklin and his gallant sailors, who took the pride of a nation on their shoulders and tragically died on their journey, far from home in a cold, lonely place. I really just scratched the surface of this story, so I really implore you to look into this tale for yourself. It is an absolutely fascinating account of what men can endure. I saw an interview with a psychologist that was asked, what could possibly have kept these men going? He said, without question, it was love. Survivors of circumstances like this are often asked what got them through, and it's always the desire to return home to those that they care about. There's a little-known statue dedicated to Franklin in London, adjoining a small park near Trafalgar Square. It has an inscription that says, To the great Arctic navigator and his brave companions, who sacrificed their lives in completing the discovery of the Northwest Passage. It should be noted that while somewhat controversial, many of the bodies of his crew were found towards the western end of the passage where Franklin had been previously, so they often are in fact credited with finally completing the journey with their final steps. I imagine a couple holding hands, walking through the park containing Franklin's statue, casually conversing as they stumble upon the bronze caricature of this man, briefly pausing, inquisitively wondering who he was and what he did before heading on their way to lunch or coffee. I cannot find the words on my lexicon to adequately convey my respect to these men that could do their sacrifice justice. What I've decided to do is observe a moment of silence in their honor. I've got a bottle of Glenlivet 18 beside me. I'm going to pour some out, observe 10 seconds of silence, and then close the podcast. Thanks for spending some of your time with me today. Until next time, be bold, be kind, and safe travels wherever your wandering takes you.